Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to share with you uh, uh, how I think the work of Thomas Aquinas can be helpful in thinking through certain questions concerning religion and theology. I want to uh, begin with the question, who is, who was uh, Thomas Aquinas? And I, I plan on talking for maybe about 45 minutes or so and then open up the floor for, for questions you may have. Uh, I have on my my study sheet, which all of you should have a, a copy of, uh, I plan on discussing three topics, and I really want to stick to that. So I may uh, go through these rather briskly, um, but it's either that or just one topic. And I wanted to sort of give you an overview of how I think Aquinas can be really helpful in thinking through uh, some contemporary questions. So who was Thomas Aquinas? He was a 13th century a uh, Catholic priest in the Dominican order. He grew up in a portion of which is now modern-day Italy, which is the Naples area. He grew up in an aristocratic family, was the youngest of, I think, a dozen children. I'm not quite sure. And his parents wanted him to become a Benedictine monk. In fact, when he was five, six years old, he was placed in a Benedictine monastery in order to be educated. Uh, but after he spent some time at uh, the University of Naples, which was largely a secular uh, university, he was drawn to the work of, of Aristotle and also to a new religious order that had arisen uh, not uh, too many years earlier called the Dominicans, the Order of Preachers. And it, was, it arose at the same time as the Franciscans, another what is called a mendicant order. They were... Uh, orders that uh, begged, that's how they raised money. And unlike the usual monastic orders, which separated themselves from ordinary life, uh, the, the Franciscans and the Dominicans lived among the people in the sort of rough and tumble of city life. And you can see that in the sorts of ministries that, that they, they wind up having or charisms. Franciscans uh, dealing with the poor and the Dominicans... Uh, uh, involved with education and and uh, doing things like the Thomistic Institute, which uh, you are privy to uh, this evening. Uh, Aquinas wrote a lot. He died at the age of 49 uh, on his way to uh, Rome, uh, uh, actually to, for, uh, I think it was the, actually Lyons, uh, Lyons, uh, and uh, died, uh, wound up being taken to a, a monastery where he passed away, but during his 49 years, he wrote an enormous amount of material, including the Summa Theologica, which is about 5,000 pages, uh, and the much smaller 800-page uh, Summa Contra Gentilis. Uh, the Summa Theologica, I, I actually, for the first time in my life, read the whole thing from cover to cover between January of 2019 and September of 2021. I created a daily reading of it. And uh, if any of you ever want to do that, you should bring with you or have with you a commentary uh, because there are large swaths of it. Even if you think you understand Aquinas, uh, having commentators uh, helps, uh, helps an awful lot, especially the way in which the style of his writing. Uh, he not only wrote those two major works, which deal with general questions of Christian doctrine, everything from the doctrine of God to the nature of human beings to ethics, uh, to questions about the afterlife, the rights of Christians uh, in, uh, uh, in relation to government, all these sorts of questions. He's also, he also wrote biblical commentaries and commentaries on works uh, such as Aristotle's uh, several of Aristotle's works, as well as other works by Christian theologians that preceded him. Uh, so this evening, we're just going to go over a tiny sliver, a very, very tiny sliver of uh, Aquinas's, in I think, are Aquinas's insights and 
discuss them in relation to uh, a few contemporary questions. So one of the, one I think a very important aspect of Aquinas' thought uh, is a distinction he makes in the relationship between faith and reason. He talks about uh, the preambles of faith and the articles of faith. And this is an important distinction because for Aquinas, human reason plays an important role in the way in which we can examine and interrogate the world. Uh, so there are things that we can know about divine matters through our natural reason, uh, but most of those things that are important to things like salvation, the afterlife, the sacraments, the nature of the church, and, the, and ultimately the nature of the triune God could only know, be known through special revelation, which are manifested in the articles of faith. Now, what are the articles of faith? Well, basically the Nicene Creed, <laughs> uh, line by line. So there's a section of the Summa where Aquinas go, goes over them, and he says that those things can only be known uh, through special a revelation. Now, this, this distinction is important, especially when, when I think people interpret Aquinas in a mistaken way. One of the mistakes that people make uh, when reading Aquinas is that even though he does say that we can know, for example, that God exists and we can know aspects of God's nature through our natural reason, he doesn't say that we have to know through our reason before we can have faith. For Aquinas, he's very much uh, in the Christian tradition that when, in fact, we ascend to the faith, it is only moved by the grace that is imparted to us that we do not earn. And for those who are familiar with church history and the debates in the 4th and 5th, uh, or actually 4th and 5th century about uh, the English monk Pelagius, uh, uh, Aquinas is very much an anti-Pelagian. He doesn't believe that you can acquire grace by any means other than God's gratuitous decision to impart grace to you. Uh, now, of course, he has a different view of grace than, let's say, some of the Protestant reformers had. But grace itself ultimately moves the will, and that is how we assent to the faith. And so one of the questions that Aquinas deals with at the very beginning of the Summa Theologica, do you, it's, this is my sort of translation of it, um, do you need an argument in order to have faith in God? No. In fact, he says... Most people don't. Why is that? Well, he says most people are dull. <laughs> and the other is that people don't have the time, right? And if, in fact, we did require people to have arguments in order, for the, in order to have faith, we would fall into the Pelagian heresy because it would mean that our own, our own effort is the thing that acquires grace. And so Aquinas makes this distinction, and I, th I think it's an important one because it, it says that the intellectual life, the life of the mind, the, in the investigation of nature, the reflection on philosophy can be illuminating in our understanding of Christian doctrine. But ultimately, the individual believer does not come to faith by simply reasoning their way to it. And so you have there this interesting and I think important distinction between nature and grace. Oh, can I have that? Yeah, excuse me. I need some little refreshment. So. Thank you. Um, so I want to talk about uh, not only the di distinction between um, faith and reason. That's a kind of introduction uh, to the three issues that I that I want to discuss, and they are they are these. I, I think there are three areas or three questions, and, and here I, I'm going to be sort of revealing my own interests because you may think to yourself, well, those questions aren't very interesting, uh, but they're interesting to me, <laughs> and they're the things that I think, and and I hope hopefully it's interesting to to other people as well. Uh, the first issue uh, that I want to talk about is. Aquinas on natural law and, and how that helps us understand moral disagreement and the intuitions we may have about morality. The second question is on Aquinas on divine action, how that helps us better understand debates in science and theology. And third, uh, Aquinas on God's nature, how it helps us understand or better understand the same God debate. So 
the last one, by the way, deals with this uh, question that arose about seven or eight years ago. Uh, it's, been a, it's been around for a while, but it uh, manifested itself uh, in a, a controversy at Wheaton College in Illinois having to do with the question of, of whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And I think what Aquinas tells us about the divine nature can help us understand uh, why I think the answer is yes. Uh, and, uh, and then the second one has to do with another contemporary debate having to do with the relationship between science and theology. Uh, in the maybe past 20 or 25 years, there's arisen, mostly in evangelical Christian circles, uh, a movement called uh, the Intelligent Design Movement. And I think Aquinas' understanding of divine action, that is how God acts in relation to nature, can help us see uh, I, I, what I think is a mistake that is made uh, when uh, certain scholars defend intelligent design theory. But the first one I want to deal with is the issue of, of, of natural law. So what is the natural law? Uh, here I'm going to quote from... Uh, the, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The natural law present in the heart of each man and established by reason is universal in its precepts and its authority extends to all men. It expresses the dignity of the person and determines the basis for his fundamental rights and duties, unquote. This means that morality is real, that it is natural and not a mere human artifice or construction, that all human beings can know it when we exercise our reason, and that it is the measure by which we judge how we should treat others as well as ourselves. So in order to, I think, sort of draw this out, is I want to uh, go over very briefly uh, something that I put together several years ago for an article I published called The Ten Bogus Rules. So imagine you lived in a government, or you lived in a nation where the government had these rules or these laws. Number one, parents may abandon their minor children without any justification and without any requirement or provide, to provide financial support. It is permissible for a city or state to, post, to pass post facto laws. It's a post facto law, you do something and they pass a law later, it says it was illegal. Our constitution actually forbids uh, post facto laws. In fact, some of the American founders didn't want to put that in the Constitution, not because they believed in it, but because they thought that if you wrote it down, it would give the people the impression that you could erase it, <laughs> and that post facto laws are so irrational that we shouldn't even give people the idea that it would be a good idea. So it's fascinating. So they had a sort of grasp of that natural law understanding. Third, the maximum punishment for first-degree murders and all-expense-paid vacation in Las Vegas... Any city or state may pass secret laws that the public cannot know. Anyone may be convicted of a crime based on the results of a coin toss. All citizens are forbidden from believing, propagating, or publicly defending the view that there is a moral law against which nations and individuals are measured. Your guilt or innocence in a criminal trial depends entirely on your race and not on a judge or jury's deliberation or legitimately obtained evidence. Government contracts are to be distributed based on family connections and bribes and not on the quality of the bids. Original, uh, original parenthood is to be decided by a special board of experts appointed by the governor and not on whether one sires or begets the child. No citizen may believe, propagate, or publicly defend the view that there is a transcendent source of being that has underived existence. So I wrote those rules down. So everyone who reads those, virtually everyone, we hope, thinks there's just something wrong about those rules. The idea that you could have a post facto law or the idea that we're going to decide guilt or innocence based on a coin toss. What Aquinas says in the Summa Theologica in a section called, um, well, which we call the Treatise on Law, which is the, uh, it's in Summa Theologica, sec uh, see, part, second part of the first part, questions 91 through, I think, 110. And what Aquinas says that the natural law is something that is the result of inclinations that God has placed in us as a consequence of the nature that he's created. So human beings 
are kind of ordered towards these goods. And one of those goods, well, one of those goods is the, uh, is the inclination to live at peace with others. And from there, Aquinas reasons, we can come to grasp certain understandings of fairness and justice. We also have an inclination uh, to, uh, uh, for the good of life. And for this reason, uh, we, we, we realize that when somebody's life is unjustly taken, uh, we grasp that it's wrong. So Aquinas talks about the natural law, but he, it, he, said, he describes it in a way not to sort of give you a definitive list uh, like the Ten Commandments, but an understanding of what seems to be intuitively correct. Now, one of the things that, um, one of the challenges uh, that arises uh, when we, when we uh, talk about the natural law is the fact that people in our contemporary culture disagree on moral issues, right? So uh, of the, in the 10 bogus list, the, the list of 10 bogus rules, virtually all of us, we hope all of us, recognize that there's something just wrong about them, right? You, you sense that they're unjust. And, and I, can't, I don't have time to do it here this evening, but each of the 10, uh, what I do in, in the article I published uh, about uh, two years ago called Four, I forget the title of my own article. <laughs> uh, yeah, Four Misunderstandings About Natural Law. Uh, and so one of the, one of, what I do is I connect each one of the 10 bogus rules to one of the goods that Aquinas mentions in his treatise on the law. And that the reason why we, we, we have these reflexes is because that's the way human beings are in fact created. Now, how does that help us? So people disagree on moral issues, right? So no matter what issue, uh, you can think of the, the sorts of issues that people disagree with, like questions about abortion, uh, marriage, uh, questions about uh, whether we should uh, prohibit hate speech. Uh, people have differing views on a variety of questions, not only uh, within society, but cross-culturally. What Aquinas says, and I think this is really helpful, is that you have to ask deeper questions about why is it that people disagree on these questions. So let me select one of them, um, the issue of abortion. So on the issue of abortion, if you, uh, if you look at why people disagree on the question, that is the moral questions, is setting aside the legal question, but uh, if, if, if you run into somebody who says, I think, uh, abortion is morally justified. And if they're reasonably sophisticated, they're going to give you an argument as to why they think uh, their position is correct. And if you read some of the more sophisticated defenders of this view, they will agree with pro-lifers, people who oppose abortion, that it is wrong to kill persons without justification or wrong to kill innocent persons without justification. But where they're gonna disagree on, over is the question of what constitutes a person. Um, so think about the ways in which people try to justify injustices. So I don't know if any of you have ever seen the film, um, The Mission with Robert De Niro. It's, a, it's about 30 something years old now. When I, was, when I first began teaching, uh, I used to be able to cite that film and about half my students had, had seen it. Now if I say, how many of you have seen The Godfather? And virtually none of them have. By the way, the first six minutes of The Godfather is all you need to know about the meaning of life. I don't know if you've ever, uh, oh, excuse me, how, how life really works, not the meaning of life, how life really works. What? That's right, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so in the mission, there's a scene where Robert De Niro, who has gone a, undergone a kind of conversion, um, is observing uh, a, dis, a debate between several Portuguese uh, leaders on whether about the enslavement of the indigenous people in South America. And one of the, one of the, 
the admirals, if, if I'm getting his rank correctly, says, no, it's wrong. We, we, these are human beings. And somebody else says, no, they're not. <laughs> of course, the second guy is totally wrong. But what it, what it shows, though, is a recognition that if, in fact, an individual is made in, with, in the image and likeness of God, you cannot treat that individual in a way that's dehumanizing or beneath his dignity. But in order to rationalize their injustice, they had to tell themselves a story, right? And the story is these are subhuman in some way. And so what's interesting is if you ever see the way in which people argue for views, even views you consider to be disreputable, they typically will try to come up with some rationalization. Why? Because they already recognize the natural moral law, right? So if you get into a discussion with somebody about whether something is just or not, Nobody ever says, yes, it's unjust, but I defend it. <laughs> what do they do? They say, no, it's really just, or it's really fair, right? Because they already have presupposed that as an assumption. Right? So I think one of the things that's really helpful about Aquinas' view of the natural law and something that he discusses in the treatise on law is, is he can account for the disagreement, right? So there's a, there's a portion of the... Uh, of the treatise on law where he, 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 he explains why people, in fact, even if people recognize the natural law, why do they violate it? Well, they violate it because human beings are not purely rational. We also are organic beings. We are, we are rational animals, meaning that we also have emotions or what he calls passions, right? So I have students who know that plagiarism is wrong. Why do they do it? Because they're drawn by their emotion, right? I don't have to write a paper. That's too much work, right? I'd rather go on spring break early. There's all sorts of reasons, right? In fact, I had a student once whose plagiarism was so bad that not even his sin was original. That's ah. Okay. Oh, it was funnier than that. Um, so, um, so what Aquinas, so what I, th I think it's helpful, the, the natural law, his view of natural law is helpful, not only because I, I think it's, it's true, but also because it helps us better understand why people disagree. In fact, it actually helps us, uh, when we have disagreements with people, to realize that we have a lot more shared moral understandings than we may think. Right. So the second issue, um, uh, I want to move on to, and that is um, Aquinas on divine action. So there's a lot here that we could go over, but this is the short version of it. Aquinas believed that God created the universe but not in the sense that God sort of created the universe and the universe is completely autonomous and separate from him. In fact, according to Aquinas, God is creating right now because he is keeping the universe in existence. So for Aquinas, God is the first cause, but not just the first cause chronologically, but the first cause ontologically, that is to say, he is keeping the universe in being right now. And so Aquinas has this other idea that's important. Not only is God the first cause, but that God can use secondary causes to achieve his end. What's a secondary cause? All the causes that we attribute to individual things in the universe. So for example, uh, my speaking right now, I'm, a, in a sense, I'm a secondary cause, right? Because God is keeping me in existence. But God can also use secondary causes, according to Aquinas, in a way to achieve his end without compromising the integrity of that secondary cause. It's kind of mysterious. <laughs> How does he do that? Now, I think a helpful way to think about it, for Christians at least, is our view of scripture. 
So think about when somebody says, the Bible is God's word. Christians believe that, regardless whether they're Catholic or Protestant. Yes, it is 100% God's word. But yet we say Paul wrote Romans. How can it be that Paul wrote Romans, it's 100% Paul, and it's 100% God? Now, it, it, we have to believe that God can use secondary causes and even free agents to achieve an end even when the agents are acting freely. If he can do that with individuals, agents, why couldn't he do that with nature itself? In other words, when we talk about the role that God's divine action plays in creation, we don't need to make room for God to act. So uh, let me then tie this into the intelligent design movement. And here I'm going to be very, very brief on what uh, the intelligent design movement uh, teaches. So, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, there's a lot of figures in the movement. Uh, most of their work was published in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and much of it was controversial because of a court case uh, in the Pennsylvania District Court that struck down a policy uh, that required uh, that uh, students be informed uh, in the, that in the library there was a book defending intelligent design uh, contra uh, the Darwinian theory that they were taught in the classroom. And a federal district judge said that that was unconstitutional, that it violated uh, the Constitution's prohibition of the est establishment of religion. So it, it sort of has died down, but it still is present. It's very dominant in a lot of evangelical churches. So um, it's two leading figures, Bill Dembski uh, and Michael Behe, who are both friends of mine. I think that they're, they're, they're mistaken, uh, but they're still friends of mine. And uh, Bill and, 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 and Mike uh, both argue for something called, well, Bill argues for something called um, uh, irreducible complexity. Um, uh, actually, uh, see, uh, Michael uh, uh, defends something called uh, uh, irreducible complexity, and Bill uh, define, uh, defends something called specified complexity. What basically what each of them argues is that uh, if we observe nature, we notice that there are that natural objects and living organisms exhibit either law-like characteristics or uh, certain events occur as a result of chance. But there are some things in nature that seem not to be the result of either chance or law. And when those uh, when we observe those things and we figure out that they are such a high level of complexity, we can infer that they were designed, that they weren't the consequence of either law or chance. So to give a kind of simple example, imagine you're, uh, you've got a bunch of Scrabble letters and you just sort of toss them in the air and they just land in all different kind of weird ways, right? That's kind of uh, chance-like, right? So whatever pops up with the Scrabble letters, some gobbledygook, that's just, that's just chance. But if I, let's say, let go of a Scrabble letter and hits the ground, that's law-like. Every time I let go of it, it's going to hit the ground. But supposing I toss up the, uh, the letters and they spell uh, something like, uh, uh, hi, my name is Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and, well, at that point, you should be frightened. <laughs> right? Or supposing you're eating alphabet soup, I guess a better example, and your name is Bob, and the letters spell B-O-B, your soup is not talking to you. <laughs> However, if in fact you pick up the spoon and it spells, and supposing your name is Nebuchadnezzar, and it says, hi Nebuchadnezzar, you should probably call a uh, Campbell's Soup Exorcist. Uh, so... What, what, what Behe and Dembski are trying to articulate is that there are, there are, there are aspects of nature, and, and Behe singles out the bacterial flagellum, which is a part of a cell that has motor-like functions and can't be, according to Behe, reduced to anything else. The problem that I see with that view, and this is where I think Aquinas can be really helpful, is that 
According to classical theism, that's the view that Aquinas holds and was the view embraced by virtually every Christian up until just recently. And that is that God not only creates the bacterial flagellum, he also creates the law and the chance. That is to say, to, 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 to let's say, to pick a, a very famous public intellectual, Richard Dawkins, who published a book back uh, 15, maybe 18 years ago called The God Delusion. Um, Dawkins argues against intelligent design, arguing that that it can be, that eventually science is gonna figure out, uh, is gonna give a Darwinian story that accounts for these things, and so Behe and Dembski, their project's only gonna fail. But the problem, according to sort of a Thomistic understanding, is, is that that basically says that in order for God to act, we need to find room in nature. And that God, that, 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 that short of that, then atheism is the rational position. And that, to me, is a concession that no theist should, should make. Uh, not only because I think it's just a bad strategy, it's also an inadequate view of the way in which God works in nature. Now, the traditional way in which someone like Aquinas would argue for the existence of God is based ultimately on uh, the fact that the universe, uh, uh, as, as a contingent entity, needs something to keep it into being. And we don't have time to get into his, his arguments here. But, but, but his argument is not based on sort of trying to find gaps in nature for God to work. And it seems to me that that's, that's a mistake that Christians shouldn't make. It's not to say that, that intelligent design theory isn't worth pursuing on one level, or that the scholars who defend it uh, shouldn't be allowed to make their cases, but I think it teaches us the wrong lessons about God and nature. Uh, lessons that I think are ultimately deleterious to a Christian worldview. One more thing about design. So what, what um, so if, in fact, uh, we should reject intelligent design. Does that mean that someone like Aquinas doesn't believe that nature is designed? No, not at all. Aquinas did believe nature uh, is designed, but he believed that, that things in nature, like living organisms, are intrinsically ordered. So it isn't as if organic beings are like artifacts. It's not as if human beings are like watches. <laughs> Uh, why are watches artifacts? Well, they are uh, physical entities that we put together by taking pieces of nature, rocks and metal and so forth, and imposing on it our extrinsic design. Human beings and other living organisms are intrinsically ordered. And so for this reason, Aquinas believed in something called final causality. And interestingly enough, final causality is very difficult to deny. Even someone like Richard Dawkins has a very difficult time denying uh, final causality. And to give you an example of this, um, from his book, The God Delusion, he talks about uh, a, a, uh, a paleontologist uh, named Kurt Wise. Kurt Wise, uh, I think he's now retired, but uh, he is a, he is a uh, uh, brilliant guy, uh, I've actually met him, and he's both Kurt and Wise, which is very rare that somebody, uh, it's like meeting a um, um, uh, orthopedic surgeon named Bonecutter. So, uh, so Kurt, uh, uh, in his own um, memoir, talks about why he never uh, could become a professor at a re research one university. Uh, he did his PhD at Harvard under the great paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould and did his undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago in geology, brilliant guy, but was a young earth creationist that is believed that the earth is only 10,000 years old and that the right way to read the first couple of chapters of Genesis is literally. Now that's a view that, the, the, that, that if you're a Catholic, you're not required to hold. Uh, and uh, it's one that I do not hold. I think it's a mistaken view. But Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, talks about Kurt Wise. And this is what he says. 
Um, as a scientist, I am hostile to fundamentalist religion because it actively debauches the scientific enterprise. It teaches us not to change our minds and not to want to know exciting things that are available to be known. The saddest example I know is that of the American geologist, Kurt Wise. The wound to his career and his life's happiness was self-inflicted, so unnecessary, so easy to escape. All he had to do was toss out the Bible or interpret it symbolically or allegorically as the theologians do. Instead, he did the fundamentalist thing and tossed out science, evidence, and reason along with his, his dreams and hopes, unquote. It's interesting about that quote by Dawkins. He says that Kurt Wise hurt his career and inflicted on himself something inconsistent with his happiness. That implies that Kurt Wise is a being who, in fact, is ordered towards happiness, <laughs> a being that is obligated to do things to promote his own flourishing, and that we are, as, as human beings, required or obligated to do not only what is best for us, but to know the truth. Everything I just said implies a kind of intrinsic order to human beings. Now, it's not artifactual order. It's not the sort of order of an iPhone or, or a watch or a clock. It's, it's similar to it, but it's not the same kind of thing. And so what Dawkins ironically is doing is engaging in design language. It's not the design language of the intelligent design advocates. It's a different kind of design language. It's the kind of design that Aquinas had talked about. In fact, Aquinas himself says, what are human beings ordered towards? Happiness. Now, for Aquinas, we, don't, we aren't fully happy until we see the beatific or have encountered the beatific vision. That is to say, in this life, we can never have full or complete happiness. We can only have happiness with union with God. But nevertheless, he does argue that we are ordered towards that happiness. And so the irony is that someone like Dawkins, who is a dyed-in-the-wool atheist and ridicules people like Wise and feel sorry for them, yet he winds up using the very language and concepts that seem to only make sense in a universe that is, in fact, teeming with order. Finally, the same God question. The same God question. So, in the Second Vatican Council, um, in a document called Nostra Atate, uh, this is what the fathers say. And here we're going to talk about the question of whether Muslims and Christians, and you can include Jews as well, worship the same God. This is what Nostra Atate says. The church regards with esteem also the Muslims. They adore the one God living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth, who has spoken to men. They have taken page to submit wholeheartedly to even his inscrutable decrees, just as Abraham, with whom the faith of Islam takes pleasure in linking itself, submitted to God. As the sacred synod searches into the mystery of the church, it remembers the bond that spiritually ties the people of the new covenant to Abraham's stock. Thus, the church of Christ acknowledges that according to God's saving design, the beginnings of her faith and her election are found already among the patriarchs, Moses, and the prophets. Now, it's clear, though, that Muslims and Christians disagree about a lot. And obviously, Jews and Christians disagree about a lot as well. When it comes to the doctrine of God, they primarily disagree on the, the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But according to Aquinas, we can know about what constitutes a divine nature by arguing or by submitting reasons to scrutiny when we examine what it means to be a creator of the universe. So let me, uh, so, so this is kind of short-circuiting or a shortcut to this. Aquinas eventually arrives at the conclusion at the first uh, couple of, actually, first 15, 20 questions of the Summa Theologica that God uh, is a self-existent, simple, perfect creator 
of all that is who has underived existence. That God is the fullness of being. That God lacks nothing. Unlike other things like us, we are, we're not the fullness of being. <laughs> uh, it's not our nature to exist. We are a combination of matter and form. God is simple. In other words, it is God's nature to exist. It's not our nature to exist. So, if you, if they're in, so, and one of the other things that Aquinas says is that there only can be one such being by nature. There only can be one God. Why? Because if there was a second, they'd have to have a distinction between them. And that would mean that you don't have the fullness of being. God is not one of a kind. He isn't like a, the last saber-toothed tiger, which would be one of a kind. He is the being from which all kinds derived their being. That is the nature, that is, in other words, for Aquinas, that's what constitutes a divine nature. And so when, for example, a Muslim or a Jew worships God, that's exactly who they worship. Now, Christians think that there's more that we can learn about God than just what reason can deliver. But that is something that we learn from what Aquinas calls special divine law, or what we call special revelation or scripture. So how do we know that God is triune? We don't know it through natural reason. We know it because God revealed that to us in the, in the New Testament. So think, for example, of Paul on Mars Hill. So Acts chapter 17. Paul is, first part of Acts chapter 17, he's in Thessalonica, and he's preaching to a, he and Silas are preaching to a Jewish audience in a synagogue. And they're fairly well received. There's some criticism, but there's no indication that he has to convince his Jewish audience that he's talking about the same God. That's agreed. But then he goes to Athens, and he's walking around the city. He notices an altar to an unknown God. And he says to his audience, hey, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. It is he in whom we live and have our being. He basically gives an account of a divine what a divine nature really is, the self-existent creator of all that is. And then he moves on and he says, and I will tell you, though, what this God has revealed to us. And he talks about the death of a man, right, who eventually rose from the dead. And there he's giving the gospel, right? But the first part, he establishes the identity of the creator. If, let's say, half the audience walked away after the first part of his talk or his preaching, would they have gotten the right God? Yes. They would not have converted to Christianity, however. Right? So, so let me give you... Um, Try, uh, conceptually, what I'm trying to say here is uh, philosophers make a distinction between sense and reference. So what's the difference between sense and reference? Um, uh, let's say um, my parents are, they go for a morning constitutional and an evening constitutional. And my father looks up in the morning and he sees the star and he says, Ah, there's the morning star. And in the evening, my mom looks up and says, oh, look, there's the evening star, the morning star and the evening star. And they think they're two different stars. Guess what? They're the, they're the, it's Venus. It's not even a star. Right? It turns out that they have different senses, but the same reference. Or supposing you get on YouTube and you see this young boxer from 1965 I think it was 65 when, he, when, when uh, uh, Cassius Clay knocked out Sonny Liston. Okay, and you go, wow, that guy's great. I wonder what happened to him. And then you watch film of a guy named Muhammad Ali. <laughs> and you think, well, this other boxer is really good too. Well, what you don't realize is you think are two different people, but they're really the same one. Or 
Another example, supposing um, you, let's say there's a, uh, I, the example I use, uh, I think I put it down on my notes, uh, the example of Tony and Tina. Um, so Tony and Tina are, are, are twins separated at birth. Um, uh, one of them is adopted by an uncle and the other one is adopted uh, by, um, by uh, somebody that's not related to the family. And the uncle uh, says, uh, tells Tony, say Tony is adopted by the uncle, and the, Tony says, the uncle says wonderful things about his father and uh, the, the, stray, the, the, the adopted mo uh, mother of, of Tina says awful things about the father, <laughs> right? They both are talking about the same, they both have the same uh, uh, reference, or the, they, they both have the same reference, but they have a different sense. So now, one more example. Imagine there are three college students, um, Ahmed, Benjamin, and Cecilia. Okay. They, Ahmed is, is Muslim, Benjamin is Jewish, and Cecilia is Christian. They go to college and they all become atheists. But then in their second year, they take a philosophy class from a Christian philosophy professor who convinces them that God exists. And they all come to believe that there is a self-existent creator of all that is. So they all believe in the exact same God, the philosophical definition that I gave you earlier that Aquinas defends in the first questions of Summa Theologica. But um, they're unsatisfied with that. They think that just a philosophical idea of God is just inadequate. So they study the three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And it turns out Ahmed becomes a Christian, uh, Benjamin becomes Muslim, and Cecilia becomes Jewish. <laughs> Do they still worship the same God? Yes, because the only di distinctions between the differences that they hold about God, namely Muslims deny that God can beget a son, uh, Jews deny the messiahship of Jesus, and Christians believe in the Trinity. Those are things that each of the traditions holds is revealed specially in Scripture. And so even though they, they disagree, they don't share the same faith, but they do worship the same God. I think I'm out of time. So let me open the floor for any, any questions that you may have about... Yes? So could another way of saying that Christians, Muslims, and Jews agree on the nature of God, but not on, his, but on the person of God, or how his person is. Professor Beckwith, if you could repeat the question. Oh, okay, yeah, so, so um, say that again. So, uh, he wants me to repeat it, but I... I, I, I <laughs> so, is, is, so the disagreement is, isn't over the nature of God, but the persons? Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, so I, I think you could put it that way. I think you could say that, uh, uh, that the persons represent relations within the divine nature, but those are only known, those will only be known through special revelation. So I, I think another way to put it is that, is that, um, that the, the Trinitarian concept of God uh, sort of adds something to uh, the initial understanding, uh, but doesn't subtract anything. So in other words, they, in a sense, you know more about God, but not less. So I don't, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but uh, yeah. yes? Um, going back to like, your recent complexity, it seems that like what they're attacking more is naturalism and not necessarily evolution. Like I, I, can, under, I can see like Behe, um, like he's not necessarily attacking theistic evolution because that would that would presuppose a cause that's guiding the evolution, not necessarily yeah. being random, right? So the mousetrap example falls apart under theistic uh, evolution, right? Yeah. So let me repeat the the yeah. question. So um, so you're you're saying that the intelligent design advocates are really um, their project is to critique naturalism um, and uh, and so now, 
what you said about the, the mouse trap. So V like, presents the idea of a mouse trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that has multiple parts. It's, it's, it's irreducibly complex. You yeah. couldn't it couldn't evolve. So yeah. a mousetrap would if a mousetrap is ordered towards catching mice, it can't do that unless there's multiple parts, right? Because, yeah. But like if if you have the idea of a god that's guiding evolution or guiding the the creation of the mousetrap towards the end of catching mice, then uh irreducible complexity is not is not attacking that idea of evolution, it's attacking the idea that the mousetrap came together randomly. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. So, uh, to repeat uh, the question, um, Behe's mousetrap example is really uh, uh, is used to sort of illustrate that you that you couldn't get a like something like a mousetrap random. Yeah. 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 I think that's what he's trying to do, but I I don't know if that really um, I don't think I don't think that counts against so let me define what naturalism is. So naturalism is the view that all that exists is the natural world and it's sometimes associated with something called physicalism or materialism, that all that exists is matter. I, I'm not sure though that, um, that it really does a good job of, of critiquing naturalism because he's essentially conceding everything else to the naturalists. Saying, I'm not willing, I just think that's a mistake because it's saying that, okay, you can't explain the bacterial flagellum, Dawkins, explain that. But Dawkins say, well, you mean everything else in nature doesn't require a designer? And I just think that's, I don't think it's a good way to, uh, I think there are better arguments against naturalism. I think, for example, the existence of a moral law is a good argument against naturalism. I think the fact that there are, um, that we, we seem to have an intellect that can know immaterial things and I think that counts against naturalism. I also think the traditional proofs for God's existence do as well. Uh, so I understand the pro, I mean, I, 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 in this sense, I, I'm sympathetic to what these guys are doing, uh, but I just think that they're just giving away too much real estate <laughs> uh, to, their, to their opponents. So, yes. My opinion of young Earth creationism? Uh, I, do, I don't think it's right. <laughs> I think it's a mistaken view. Um, personally, I've never really wrestled. It's never been a big deal to me uh, as a Christian about the first chapters of Genesis and how to interpret them. And I, I don't know whether it had to do with my upbringing. I, I went through a uh, I grew up Catholic, and then when I was a teenager, 13 years old, I left the church and became an evangelical Christian. And uh, when I entered that world, I, I became aware for the first time of some of these uh, debates about how to interpret Genesis, but it just never was a burden for me. I just don't, I don't know whether I was a weird little kid or not. Uh, it just wasn't, uh, to me, uh, and I, I, think, I think what really helped me was uh, uh, you know, uh, if you're reading, and I'm not an Old Testament scholar, so this is, I'm really out of my depth here. Uh, but when, for example, it says in, in Genesis that God walked with Adam, it's not saying he had legs. Right? I mean, so we have to, I think that an interpretation that, um, uh, that is more metaphorical uh, is one that makes the most sense, um, but then again, this is you know I'm I'm not a, I'm just a philosopher, not a theologian, so or a biblical scholar. I mean, I'm really not that. Uh, but yeah, so for me, I've never really struggled with that issue, and I and um, in fact, when I was an evangelical, I I I, I kind of admitted that, and I was invited to speak in Oceanside, California, Calvary Chapel. Um, to, not on this issue, but just on the issue of, of moral relativism. And somebody in the audience asked me what I thought about the creation evolution debate, and I gave that answer, and I was told by the pastor I would never be invited back to speak because that was, you know, not the, that, you know. So I, you know, I, again, I just, I, it just never was a burden. I just, I actually would, wouldn't have answered the question if I knew that was going to be the consequence, but that's, <laughs> uh, but I understand. I, I think one of the things about the history of it. I mean, this is, by the way, where 
Um, European evangelicals have a much different take on this question than American ones, and it has a lot to do with uh, our unique history of the Scopes trial in the early 20th century. That was the trial involving John Scopes, the uh, teacher in Dayton, Tennessee, who, um, who was convicted for violating the state's anti-evolution statute and became this huge, uh, it was really the first trial of the century because uh, it was broadcast live on WGN radio. And uh, William Jennings Bryan was the, worked as the attorney uh, for, the, for the prosecution and Clarence Darrow, the famous defense attorney, defended John Scopes. And uh, that had a big influence on the way at least American evangelicals thought about the creation evolution controversy. Uh, but if you look at some of the early American evangelicals, when they first confronted evolution, they were very much open to theistic evolution. So B.B. Warfield, a great Princeton theologian, defended theistic evolution. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the, there's a Scottish theologian, James Orr, uh, who contributed to that, the, the, the multi-volume series called The Fundamentals. That's where we get the word fundamentalist, by the way. They, uh, in the early 20th century, uh, American evangelicals who were fighting uh, theological liberalism in mainline seminaries put together uh, a bunch of pamphlets that became chapters in this multi-volume series called The Fundamentals. And James Orr wrote a piece uh, defending theistic evolution. It sort of, it fascinates people because, you know, when we think of fundamentalists, we think of, of that, you know, particular view of young earth creationism, but that only arises uh, after uh, the Scopes trial in terms of the dominant view. And it's, it's largely due with evangelicals appropriating uh, Seventh-day Adventist literature on, on, on the issue. So uh, that's a, I know you didn't ask for all that. <laughs> so, all right, we, we only have a, a few minutes left. Yes, yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you could maybe um, explain a little more what you meant exactly by final causality. Okay. Yeah, so, so final causality is, um, is what something is ordered towards. So to give you a, 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 so the final cause of my eyes is to see. The final cause of my mind is to know. Right, so there, those are sort of easy examples, right? Um, uh, according to Aquinas, the final cause of a human being is union with God. God is his own final cause. So this is why the Summa Theologica is written uh, as a kind of, uh, as it begins with the creation of the universe and then eventually the universe comes back to God at the end. Uh, so a final, so, so let's say you go to an uh, optometrist, uh, get your eyes uh, uh, checked and uh, he says you have uh, an astigmatism and I have to prescribe certain glasses to you. Uh, and you say to the, you know, in, that assumes what? That, that there's a right way to see <laughs> and, and that your eyes are ordered towards that end. Yes? So another way to say final causality could be like final purpose? Yes, yeah, yeah. And again, those are kind of easy examples, right? So, um, so typically any creature uh, is kind of ordered towards being the best version of that creature. So we don't say, and, and it affects our judgment. So like if, if, if I were to lose my eyesight, by the way, I use eyesight as an example for two reasons. I have a brother who's an eye doctor and I've had two detached retinas. Uh, I'm fine now, but, uh, but if I were, I almost went blind in my right eye uh, and imagine, you know, I were to go blind. Blindness is a lack that I have because my, I am a being ordered towards sight. So you feel sorry for me. You say, oh, Beckwith lacks, lacks sight. Uh, but you don't say that about a rock. You don't walk, walk across campus, you see a stone, you go, oh, poor stone, can't see. <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that's ordered towards that, right? So the fact that your cat doesn't know geometry is not bad for the cat, right? You know, or let's say, you know, my dog just won't speak French. Right? Or, you know, my dog, he's quiet all, doesn't say a thing, right? We should go to the vet and see what's wrong with him. He's not talking, right? Well, not supposed to talk. But if you had a five-year-old who didn't talk, well, you'd be concerned, right? Because five-year-olds sometimes talk too much, 
right? But they are ordered towards talking. No. All right, I think we are just about out of time. Uh, um, did you have anything else that you wanted to say? No, no. I, I thank you so much for having me, and uh, hopefully, uh, uh, what I had what I had to say will kind of pique your interest in, uh, in in Saint Thomas Aquinas and his work. In fact, I speaking of that, I Lee mentioned this is uh, my book, <laughs> Never Doubt Thomas: The Catholic Aquinas is Evangelical and Protestant. It came out three years ago, Baylor University Press. And some of, much of what I spoke about this evening is in the book, and a lot of it has to do with my own journey from Catholic to Protestant and back again. So thank you so much for coming, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.